we get this sort of non-event feedback all the time when we're out there. You know, we we ski a line, it does an avalanche, and so we think, hey, I just made a great decision. That slope was totally stable. But as we well know, sometimes it's the 10th skier down the slope. Somebody finds a sweet spot. And so it's really hard. You can spend all these years out there doing it, thinking you're making great decisions. And then the one time you're, you don't make a great decision, it becomes incredibly obvious. And I was just having this conversation yeah. with a colleague of mine who has not had a lot of formal avalanche education, but has a huge amount of backcountry experience and uh, suddenly had an avalanche involvement recently. And it just like completely rattled her, uh, you know, because they were completely surprised by it. And I think, unfortunately, yeah. that's the problem. You and I spoke about this in the past, but you know, it's the definition of a wicked learning environment is somewhere where you don't get feedback on your decisions on a regular basis. So it's really hard to know whether or not you're making good decisions. Welcome to All Aspects, a podcast where we explore, discuss, and celebrate adventure culture and outdoor lifestyle. It is our mission to educate, inform, and entertain our fellow adventurers about the inherent risks that surround us every time we go outside to play, and to provide you with the knowledge and tools to help you do the things you love the most in the safest way possible. All Aspects is brought to you by Aspect Abbey. Aspect Abbey is on a mission to save lives by making avalanche safety simple. It is the only app that tells you where the high and low risk zones are for today's avalanche danger. With a suite of built-in tools like forecast verification, slope meter, and gear checklist, Aspect Abbey is the new safety standard for avalanche risk management. Remember, there are dozens of apps that get you into the backcountry, but there's only one that's designed to bring you home. And that's Aspect Abbey. Go to aspectabbey.com to learn more or download the app to start your 30 day free trial. Thank you, Aspect Abbey, for making this show possible. And thank you for listening. All right, let's get to the show. All right, welcome to the All Aspects podcast, where we talk about how to do dangerous things in the backcountry the safest way possible. And I'm really excited for today's guest, a uh, longtime colleague and we don't see each other very often, but I really resonate with this guy quite a bit. He's got a big brain on him and a uh, great personality as well as Larry Goldie. Larry lives up in the North Cascades. He's an AMGA, an IFMGA guide. And uh, we went through the guide exams together at about the same time, got to know each other there. Um, he's an avalanche expert. He's been teaching rec courses for two decades now and pro courses for over a decade. Um, and then he's also the snow safety director at North Cascade Heli Skiing. And he also wears a lot of different hats. He's a dad as well. And he's also a coach for mountain athletes at Evoke uh, for the last couple of years. And uh, let's dive right in. Uh, Larry, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to be here. Yeah. Hey, um, softball question to start. Um, okay. You've lived a life of adventure for many decades now. Um, what was it that attracted you to this lifestyle and then this career? I, you know, it's a funny question. I had somewhat of an improbable path, but uh, in high school, I grew up in New Jersey, so kind of kid of the suburbs, raced BMX bikes uh -huh. in high school. <laughs> I fell in with this crew of deadheads, people that were traveling around to see the Grateful Dead. And so 
Uh, we would go on tour. We would like print stickers and graphic design class in high school and like literally selling stickers, selling fireworks, like subsidize our ways to yeah. go follow the dead around. And right when I graduated high school, I had this Volkswagen bus and we drove all the way across country to go see the Grateful Dead in Ventura, California. And I had just blown the engine on the bus like days before. And I had this guy come, he put in a new engine in my driveway. And so we're like a day behind schedule to leave on the trip. So we start driving, there's three of us, one person driving, one person navigating, one person sleeping. And we drove 24 seven and uh, brand new Volkswagen air cooled engine. We would pull over on the side of the road, change the oil every thousand miles. And we roll in like 15 minutes before the show is supposed to start. And, uh, and somebody's like, Hey, we going to the canceled show. And we're like, what, you know, like this is 1986. So there's no cell phones, no internet. Like we hadn't heard anything about the show being canceled. So we wind up, uh, turns out Jerry Garcia went into a diabetic coma and, uh, they canceled a bunch of shows. So we we're suddenly out of luck. We met up with a friend who lived in Southern California and he's like, Hey, you guys, let's, let's go up to Sequoia national park. And so we drove up to Sequoia national park and camped there and we're hiking around every day, hanging out amongst the Sequoia trees. And I was just like, Oh my God, I would have driven across country just to come here. And it was on that wow. trip. I was like, I want to spend wow. my life in places that are as beautiful as this. Like here, I'm, you know, kid from the suburbs back East. Oh, wow. and like I'm laying on the ground at night, looking up at like the most incredible sky I've ever seen. And, you know, just the mountains. I was just so blown away that I, you know, that put me on my path where I was like, I want to make a living hanging out in places like this. So what all a thanks happy to accident. Say, wow. yeah, right. If Jerry, <laughs> if Jerry had managed his blood sugar better, you might yeah. not be a mountain. There guy. might have been some drugs involved. I don't know. <laughs> for, for Jerry, not well, for me. I got to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course not. Of course, of course not. Yeah, yeah. No, no experienced psychonauts have ever been on the podcast here. I, I got to say. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that sounds like a really interesting adventure and. And it kind of reminds me of like my like kind of early trips out west when I was in college. And I think we like flew into San Francisco, stayed with a friend in Berkeley, and then we hitchhiked out to Yosemite, which took like three days <laughs> to happen. And then just like camped in the dirt all summer and climbed our faces off. And literally someone would read the John Long How to Rock Climb book and yell up at the leader. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. I had some early adventures like that. My first time, I remember my very first lead was in Yosemite, and I didn't know anything about runners. Whoa. You know, I bought a used rack of like mostly stoppers and some hexes, and I didn't know you're supposed to put slings on these things. And like I'm pulling over onto the ledge at the top of the pitch, and I looked down, and like all but one of my pieces had pulled out just from rope drag. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. You know, it's, it's better you didn't know until the end, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh my gosh. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit envious of uh, folks uh, who, who are learning to get into climbing and skiing now because there's so many more resources available and um, opportunities. Like I didn't even know like mountain guiding was a job and it would have been a lot better to hire a guide or, or do a course with a mountain club or something like that instead of like, oh, the trial and error method when you're dealing with life and death consequences. It's, it's kind of a small miracle still here. Yep. Yeah, I know. Thank goodness for guardian angels. <laughs> but I think, yeah, now but, you, know, you and I are raising young kids. We're like, man, I hope that guardian yeah. angel is still in place. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of relieved. My daughter is very casual about skiing and climbing. She's just like, man, I got to take it or leave it. I'm just like, hey, that's great. No big deal. Yep. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, as a follow-up here, so uh, um, it's pretty interesting that adventure you described. Like, there's so many unknown parts of it, and it, it sounds like it was a bit touch and go whether the van would even make it out there, and then no idea that the shows had been canceled, and then just like pivot into a new itinerary, and just like all these happy accidents. What what is what does adventure mean to you? What what, do you, what what is it that attracts you to it? And what are some things you associate with it? Or how would you define it? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It kind of, it brings me right back to those years. Uh, I had no idea this was like my informal training as a mountain guide, but all those years of traveling with the Grateful Dead, like we were constantly having adventures. There was the show, but it was the travel in between you know, the thing I used I to know. say about driving a Volkswagen bus is you just never, ever knew if you were going to get somewhere or not. And I wound up sleeping in so many crazy places. Remember one time going to these shows with a buddy and a friend of his who had I had never met before. And he had a Volkswagen van and it blows up on the side of the road. He gets out, looks in the engine compartment. And he's like, well, what are you guys waiting for? Grab your stuff, get your thumbs out there. And like in less than five minutes, he just makes the decision to abandon his van on the side of the road and go what? for this like four day trip. Like he didn't even hardly think about it. And, you know, we <laughs> grab, put sleeping bags under our arms, backpacks on. And, and sure enough, we just like slept on the ground in the parking lot. And we ran into people that got us a ride home. And just that, uh, I think from a lot of those early adventures, I just developed this appreciation for not knowing exactly what was going to happen. You know, you kind of yeah. have a loose plan, but, you know, it's that, to me, it's like the joy of travel, whether it's mountain travel or foreign travel. It's just that the element of uncertainty of it all that uh, that keeps you on your toes. And I feel like it, it sort of it brings out the best in people because you just, you don't know what's going to happen and you have to be ready to pivot and adjust to whatever circumstances you're in. And, uh, yeah. nowadays, you know, I feel like as a guide, 
I like to take people on adventures, but I want a lot more confidence in the outcome. So, so there's a little, there's always, you know, we always deal with a certain amount of uncertainty, but you know, we build in margins. So we're sure we can have some uncertainty and still bring everyone home safely at the end of the day. But I think uh, a friend of mine once wrote a book about uh, the elements of adventure, which I think he, he really oh. kind of nailed, which was, uh, you know, it's, it starts with high endeavor, something that's, uh, you know, it's okay. a goal that is, is challenging for people. And then there is that element of uncertainty. The outcome of the trip is uncertain and there's good companionship and then uh, mm, a for adversity. And I feel yeah. like, yeah, those are all like truly the elements of adventure. And, you know, you got to have all those in there and uh, you take anyone away. We've all been out there with people that have low tolerance for adversity. And it's like, man, you're <laughs> kind of killing this trip for everybody. <laughs> it reminds me of like, JFK's moonshot speech where he's like, we choose to do these things not because they're easy, but because they are hard. And it will be the test of our ingenuity, our commitment, our perseverance. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm signing yeah. up for. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do want to back up a little bit and just say, hey, none of this is scripted. Um, so I had no idea you were going to go there and that, that the Grateful Dead were instrumental in, in your life of adventure. And I, I don't want to leave the audience with the idea that um, you're like this trippy dippy deadhead just winging it from the hip. Because I think one of the things one of the things that I love about talking with you and bouncing ideas with colleagues is that you're a real critical thinker. You're constantly asking why. And this notion of best practices, a lot of people feel like it's a destination. Oh, we're doing best practices. We arrived. And it's like, no, no, no. Those are constantly evolving. And I always see you kind of pushing for better, pushing for better and be like, hey, that's great what we're doing now. But how can we optimize this? How can we make it safer, simpler, more enjoyable, um, higher rewards, that kind of stuff? And uh, I think... Uh, that your approach to risk really resonates with me. And that's one of the reasons why I want to have you on the podcast. So I just want to clear up any misconceptions that yeah. listeners might have. <laughs> if you hire Larry as a mountain guide, he's going to pick you up in his Volkswagen bus and you may or may not make it to the trailhead. That yeah. is not the case no. at all. Yeah. The, the, they were formative years, but it feels like another lifetime ago. And that's honestly yeah. what makes such a funny story is that, you know, that, it was an unlikely entrance to this industry. Uh, but yeah, mm. some great adventures. Now I drive, you know, highly reliable vehicles and <laughs> have a little more of a plan when I take off on a trip. <laughs> I even have trip Although, away. So if I do break down, I don't have to just abandon my car. <laughs> do they have AAA for helicopters? <laughs> And that might be a good segue. Maybe you could contrast what's a day in your life like at North Cascade heli skiing, where yeah. as the snow safety director, um, you know, there, there's a quote from the big Lebowski where they tell the dude, Hey, her life is in your hands, dude. And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't say that. Cause he doesn't want the responsibility, but it is a huge amount of responsibility on you. 
because you're charged with keeping your guide team safe, but also keeping the public safe. And I'm guessing you probably have like families with kids out there. Occasionally we do. Yeah. You know, uh, we typically, we, we start every day just by explaining to the guests like, Hey, we've got two big goals for the day. The first goal is to bring everybody home safely at the end of the day. The second goal is to have a great day of powder skiing, you know, go out into this wild backcountry and find the best snow that's out there. And, but we let them know that the first goal always trumps the second goal. It doesn't matter how good the skiing is. Like everyone wants to come home at the end of the day. And I think just yeah. front loading that for people is really important to say like, you know, you're not hiring me to serve up the best run of your life. I'll try to do that, but you're hiring me to ensure that you can go out and do this and come back at the end of the day. And there, there yeah, is a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. You know, we, we don't do any yeah. control work out there. So it's a fully okay. wild. No path. Nope. Okay. Uh, it's not in our permit. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, ultimately we have to choose carefully what terrain that we're, we're going to ski. Uh, so our day starts pretty early. The guides will typically arrive an hour or more before the guests show up and we go through a morning workflow uh, on the InfoX platform. And uh, we'll go through a whole run list where we'll talk about whether or not a run's going to be open or closed for guest skiing for the day. And, uh, and ultimately if a run is open, it just means we feel like it can be safely guided. It doesn't mean that any particular line on that slope is fair game. It might be mm -hmm. like really tight controls to get people through a certain section, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if we, if we feel like it's manageable. And then after we go through that whole meeting, we'll kind of come up with a game plan for the day. That's often dependent on the groups we have, the weather we have for the day, other logistical considerations, if we have touring groups or if there's a yurt exchange or anything else uh, that's happening within the operation. Yeah. Then the guests then let me just show back up. up. Yeah, sure. Hold on. If I, if I could just do a couple of terms in there that people might not be familiar with. So the InfoX is kind of the industry platform for how you log information throughout the season and track weak layers and their distribution of where they are for the aspect, Northeast, Southwest, elevation bands. Um, and then it's also how we share information as professionals in a standardized platform. Um, so it's, it's a very formalized setup so that you can keep track of the snow throughout the whole season. Um, and then what was the other thing that I was going to, Oh yeah. Uh, I can't remember. All right. Keep going. Well, you know, I'll just throw in one thing about the InfoX. It's both, uh, it's a tool for internal sharing of information as well as external. So we can share it with all our nearest neighbors and then everybody's making better decisions because we're seeing what everyone else is seeing and they're seeing what we're seeing. But then mm -hmm. uh, it's a, it's a way for us to keep our whole guide team apprised of what's going on on every day, the workflow gets sent out to everyone, even the guides that aren't working. So those people can keep abreast of what's happened each day. Uh, you know, that's what we skied, what conditions were like, any avalanches we've observed, all those things. 
So uh, it goes both ways, both internal and external with that platform. Yeah. Oh, I now it popped back into my head, the run list. I think this is a foreign concept for a lot of recreationalists because a lot of folks say, hey, let's go to this zone. I'd really like to ski this line. It's kind of putting things backwards mm -hmm. um, and we'll see if we think it's in condition. And professionals do it totally backwards. We say, hey, here's the conditions and here's our group. What is appropriate for both? What's the appropriate terrain given the snow conditions and group we have today? And could you talk a little bit about how we've got the green and the red on the run list and how those two don't get fuzzy? How do you keep them straight in your head so you don't you know, get pulled into, oh my God, that red run looks really good. Let's rationalize how we're going to ski it. Yeah. Well, and honestly, Jeff, that is, that's the whole point of doing a run list is to take emotion out of the decision-making process. So, you know, we sit around in the morning looking at computers or projected images of the terrain. We're all drinking coffee and, uh, and we talk about the weather and the snowpack and then the weather forecast. And then we talk about what terrain given all that data would be, a, you know, a safe choice for the day. And we try to, you know, have enough terrain open that we can make a day out of it. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a very non-emotionally charged environment. Bunch of guides sitting around a table, drinking coffee, just crunching numbers, looking at, you know, telemetry data. How, how much did the wind blow last night? And what are the weak layers that we're dealing with? And then talking about terrain as opposed to going out in the field, skiing a really mellow run in great snow and being like, wow, that was so fun. What about that? Let's go over there. You know, that's, that's an emotionally charged environment and you're not going to be making your best decisions at that point. So the run yeah. list is a tool to take the emotion out of it. Yeah. And, and it yeah. is, I would I, say there's also, there's one more factor where we have this ability to close terrain in the field if we get out there and suddenly well the wind slabs are way touchier than we thought or they're deeper than we expected we can say okay well we're not going to go here we're not going to go there but we can't go the other way we can't open terrain in the field if we got it wrong the penalty we pay is that we can't ski that terrain for the day but we can go there tomorrow so, uh, yeah, so yeah, there yeah. are some ability to change our perspectives in the field, but only to a more conservative outcome. Yeah. It's a one way street towards conservative decision-making. We can never say, oh, that was red on the list. Cause we were worried about wind slabs, but I'm yep. not seeing it. So let's go ahead and green light it. That does not happen in a professional no. setting. It does not happen. Exactly. Nope. Yeah. I, I find it's, it's really interesting when I'm, my list of backcountry ski partners is really short and it's often with professionals because it's so much easier to work with that same framework. And yeah. when we introduce a member of the public, they're just, this is like a different language. And when they're like, Hey, that skied really well, why don't we go over and ski that? And all the guys are like, eh, nope, it wasn't on the table at meeting this morning when we had coffee. And they're like, 
what are you talking about? It's a totally different way of looking at risk. Yeah, and no, absolutely. And I feel like, uh, you know, it's one thing when I do teach recreational courses, I encourage people to have a process like this, however informal it is of just, you know, if they're talking about a zone, either look at photos or talk about some of the main ski lines in there and what's open and what's closed for the day and then choosing your partner super carefully. So if there are people that you go out with that always want to push and, you know, ski a little bit more aggressively over time, you might decide, you know, it's not worth it to call those people. And, uh, and I'm like you, where I have a very short list of people I'm willing to ski with. And a lot of times if I can't find a partner, it's like, I'll just go skin up our ski hill, take a couple laps, get a good workout in, but I'm just, it's important enough to me to have like good decision-making out in the field that I won't just go with anybody that, uh, that's willing to go. Yeah. Whereas in my younger age, you know, you, you, meet someone at a dinner party or at the bar and be like, Oh, you want to ski tomorrow? Sure. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) And have no idea what people's skills or risk tolerance. And yeah. Yeah. And have very, very slim guardrails to, to buffer, uh, from, from, from calamity. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, (laughs) what are you seeing? You've been teaching avalanche courses for about two decades now and pro courses for over 10 years. What do you see the pros struggle with on their courses? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think like everyone, uh, you know, we all struggle to deal with uncertainty. Uh, mm. And I think, you know, at the professional level, We feel like we should have higher confidence in our decision-making. One of the easy Mm. ways to have high confidence in your decision-making is keep your decision-making really conservative. But, uh, you know, we try to have uh, the foundation of our decision-making based on strength and weight of data. And one thing I see... uh, professionals doing is we go out in the field, we have targeted observations that we're trying to take. And then we bring that data back to the operation. And I think we can all be guilty of just the bias of when it takes us an hour in a snow profile to gather some information about, for example, a targeted layer that we're looking at in the snowpack, uh, even though it's just one piece of information and we know that the snowpack is really variable over the terrain, it's hard not to be biased toward that piece of information that we got. And, you know, when we have a a guide meeting and we're discussing these things, people tend to be biased toward the information that they've collected themselves. So the results of the snowpack tests that they've done even though it might yep. not agree with, you know, some of the the larger number of observations that have been taken out there, uh, when we take it ourselves and we have invested a lot of our own time in there, it's hard not to be biased toward thinking that what you see is all there is out there. Uh, so I 
that's one thing I see a lot of professionals struggle with, you know, and I, I find myself in meetings pointing out all the time, like you guys, we really don't have that many data points here. We've dug a couple of profiles over this vast tenure. You know, how confident are you that this problem really doesn't exist anywhere else just because <laughs> we're not seeing it in these handful of holes? Well, if I was the person banging on this 30 by 90 centimeter column, I'm going to have a lot of confidence in it because it, you know, this is classic social psychology, neuroscience stuff of the recency bias. And if it's my data, I believe it wholeheartedly. And I think that's yeah. one of the great examples of working in a team where you can check me and be like, hey, Jeff, I know you just dug two pits and that's very fresh in your brain. But we were just out skiing around with clients today while you were on snow safety team. And this is what we saw. And they don't actually mesh. And it, it's I think that's really important to remind yourself if you're in the public of, hey, listen, you know, you just don't have that much information to go off of and contrast that with how a professional operation will do it, where you're pooling information and tracking it the whole season and then still making usually more conservative decisions than the public is doing is, is often what I see out there. You know, I would totally agree. And that's why I think, uh, you know, the forecast center, they tend to have the most information of anybody. They've got professional observers out there. The forecasters are out digging. They're in touch with ski areas and guiding operations. And so they tend to have more data points than anyone. So yeah. I, I feel like if you're a recreational skier and you're thinking that the Avalanche Center has it all wrong and things are way better than they're saying, you got to realize they've, they're the ones that have all the information. And, uh, I, you know, I think <clears throat> we get this sort of non-event feedback all the time when we're out there. You know, we, we ski a line, it does an avalanche. Great. And so we think, hey, I just made a great decision. That slope was totally stable. But as we well know, sometimes it's the 10th skier down the slope. Somebody finds a sweet spot. And so it's really hard. You can spend all these years out there doing it, thinking you're making great decisions. And then the one time you're, you don't make a great decision, it becomes incredibly obvious. And I was just having this conversation yeah. with a colleague of mine who has not had a lot of formal avalanche education, but has a huge amount of backcountry experience and uh, suddenly had an avalanche involvement recently. And it just like completely rattled her, uh, you know, because they were completely surprised by it. And I think, unfortunately, yeah. that's the problem. You and I spoke about this in the past, but, you know, it's the definition of a wicked learning environment is somewhere where you don't get feedback on your decisions on a regular basis. So it's really hard to know whether or not you're making good decisions. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's in the past, that's been a big problem with avalanche education is there's no way for us to know what we don't know. So when we do a debrief at the end of the day, we're just like, well, I think we got it right. We didn't get avalanche. We didn't see any signs of instability. But in the past, we didn't know how close to the edge we were or if we were pushing into the red high risk zone. 
And yep. that is a really tough way to learn where you don't have a mentor. Cause like, think about if you ever played any kind of kids sports or did drama or music, you had a mentor, a coach who was on you and they're like, yep. Hey, you got the right result, but your process was all fucked up. <laughs> we yeah. need to correct that to set you up for success in the future. And, yep. uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with debriefing your tours with aspect Abbey, but that's something I like is like, Oh shit. I actually went into the red here for this short 20 meter section. Why did I do that? Let's not do that again. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you bring up a good point that I think we're also all subject to sort of outcome bias. So for years, it's been standard operating procedure for almost anyone. When you have something happen in the field, you know, an avalanche, you all, mm. you debrief it at the end of the day. It's like, wow, you know, we got to talk about that. That was a really close call or that was like terrible accident, whatever. But when we don't, Hey, we just pat ourselves on the back and think, yeah, we nailed it today. When in fact, if we get into that pattern of debriefing our day and not necessarily just looking at the outcome, but like, hey, how is our decision making process? How are our comms out there today? Even if nothing really went wrong, that's when we start doing better every day. And just because we, you know, got away with it, it's exactly what you're saying about like, hey, we didn't have an avalanche tray, but we did wind up in the red you know, why did we do that? And how could we have avoided that? You know, one of yeah. my favorite questions in these kind of daily debriefs, and honestly, I do these with my friends all the time is just say, hey, if we went and repeated that tour tomorrow, what would we do differently? And I think for yep. so many people, you know, we all want to get better at this. That's that's the million dollar question is like, what am I going to do differently tomorrow? So I'm making better decisions than I did today. Yeah. And since we're just coming off the Super Bowl, I, I was listening to an interview with uh, it was an in-depth dive on the Freakonomics podcast about the San Francisco 49ers. And they were talking with the coach and like the day after a game, the whole day is spent analyzing video with every member of the team. Yeah. And I was like a whole day. And he's like, yeah. The day after game day, I'm in at the office at five in the morning and it's reviewing every single second with each player to review their performance and see what are we going to do differently next time to be better. And I was just like, whoa. And, you know, it may feel like football is life or death, but skiing really is life or death. And yeah. quite often people are like, hey, we didn't see an avalanche. High five, beer 30. Let's go. Hey, yeah. um, so I asked you what you see with professionals, what kind of mistakes do you see them do? Uh, what about for recreationalists when you're teaching a rec course uh, or like doing an avalanche refresher for folks? Um, are you seeing anything different that they, they mistakes they tend to make that you'd be like, hey, I need to step in here and do some coaching so that we change this habit and set them up for success? Yeah, there's, there's a few things uh, that I see with a lot of recreational skiers. I would say one of them right out of the gate is they often head out into the field without any sort of plan. Let's just go out there and see what looks good. 
And so there's no yeah. <laughs> formalized decision making in that non-emotionally charged environment. So they're leaving themselves open to all these human factors that we know tend to be the underlying cause of almost every accident for one reason or another. Yeah. It's like, oh, there's tracks on that slope. So we thought it would be fine. We saw another group go there. All these things that can sway our decision making where in that non-emotionally charged environment, there's no way I would ski that today. But if we didn't have that mm. conversation, we get out there and we see a couple people we know going to ski that, suddenly we can talk ourselves into it. So yeah. uh, that's one of the biggest ones. You know, I would say by and large, for so long, the focus has been on beacon, shovel, probe, have all these rescue skills. And it's like, well, I would agree those are requisite skills for anyone going out in the backcountry. The reality is it's like CPR. Like you're, if you, hopefully you're never, ever going to use those things. And so yeah. we have to carry the gear and we have to have those skills. But in reality, we want to have a decision-making process that's going to keep us from ever utilizing those things in our pack. And so I think that and avalanche courses, of course, is where you have to learn those skills. But I feel like there's been such an emphasis on that over the years that people think because they know how to do rescue and because they're carrying the gear that they are being safe. When in fact, you know, that has nothing to do with being safe. It's that's essentially having a first aid class before you go out backpacking. You know, you're probably not going to use any of those first aid skills, but, you know, you're obviously a safer person in the backcountry for having those skills, but you want to make good decisions to begin with. So it's uh, interesting if I could rip off you for a second, it's kind of interesting that the focus is on the reactive gear and knowing how to use it well. And you're like, okay, but the stats are if we're buried it's a coin toss, whether we're going to live or die if we're buried. And that is like, whoa, what if we put the emphasis on our proactive systems to keep us out of avalanches altogether? And it, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm hearing you say, hey, there needs to be more of an emphasis on our proactive systems. Um, yes, you got to have the rescue skills and gear, but yeah. it's so much better if we never have to touch them. Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, avalanche education has moved heavily in that direction. You know, I know at Airy, level one class is called decision making in avalanche terrain, and it's to help people come up with a process. So and it's kind of mimicked after what we do very formally as guides, but it's have a, a process that's repeatable that ultimately gets better the more we use it so that we are making good decisions to begin with. So we hopefully never have to reach into our packs to pull out any of that rescue gear. You know, yeah. one thing I'll yeah. sometimes do in my recreational avalanche classes is ask people like, hey, give me your transceiver right now before you ski this slope. And, you know, people look <laughs> at you just lost your mind and it's like really you're not willing to see this slope without a transceiver do you what do you think the likelihood this thing's gonna avalanche and if it's high enough that 
you know, the only way you would possibly ski it is with your beacon, then in my mind, you might not have enough of a margin <laughs> built in. Like I, I yeah. as a guide, especially for an operation where we don't do any kind of active mitigation, you know, we are avoiding right. avalanches. We are trying to ski slopes that we feel like very, very low likelihood are going to avalanche. And, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm not going to take off my transceiver, <laughs> but at the same time, I don't feel like the only reason I'm willing to ski that slope is because I have a transceiver on. I feel like the main reason I'm willing to ski it at all is because I'm confident that I'm not going to trigger an avalanche on it. And have when you my run confidence, across... I was going to say, when my confidence Sorry, go goes down, <clears throat> I start thinking about maybe I should choose a different slope or a more conservative line on this slope. Yeah. Have you come across Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets? Yes. Uh, oh, I love know, her. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I feel like I want to hire her to come into our operation <laughs> uh, to talk to us about decision making because, you know, so much of what she talks about has direct application to the kind of decision making that we are making, where, uh, you know, in the world of poker, it's that is not a wicked learning so environment. Okay. Yeah. Just say, so she's a, a neuroscience psychology researcher at Penn, uh, PhD, and she's also a world series champion of poker. And the lens she looks through is she says, Hey, listen, life is not chess. Chess is where all the moves are known, all the information's available and the best player is going to win. Life is like poker where you have limited information, a high degree of uncertainty, and it's about the process because you may get the process right, but you may not get the right outcome. And as you said, it's a bit of a wicked learning environment. And but you, you get you get feedback quicker than you do from uh, the avalanche game. So you might have a full house. and It looks like a good hand. But holy cow, Larry's holding four aces. And I just didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you and know, her, I think... and her phrase to encapsulate it is, is do you want to bet? Hey, Larry, I'm really confident about this slope. And you're like, really, Jeff, do you want to bet your life on that? Give me your transceiver. Like just yeah. how much margins do we have on this? Yeah. 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 Well, and one of the Keep things going. I, want, I want to hear your about... Sorry, I'll shut up. No, no, no. It's great. I'm so glad you brought up Annie Duke because, uh, you know, and I would actually throw out there. Uh, I just listened to an incredible interview with her on a podcast called Capital Allocators, where uh, she talks all about decision making and dealing with uncertainty. And uh, one of the things she brings up is this idea of, you know, we use these terms all the time, like likely and possible and, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of vague terms but they mean very different things to many different people. So, uh, you know, they've done some studies where they've asked different people, when I say something is a real possibility, I want you to put a percentage on that, a real possibility. And the percentage range people gave was from 20 to 80%. 
right? For likely? When something, yeah, for a real possibility. Wow. Hey, so, Larry, you know, we, I say, <laughs> let's go into this bar tonight. It's likely we're going to get our asses kicked because it's a pretty rough crowd. Do you want to go in there? <laughs> I'm going to say hell no. <laughs> Yeah, and yet, which I think that's what we see at considerable avalanche danger. The definition is human triggered avalanches are likely. And yet yeah. we still see lots of people pushing hard in steep avalanche terrain, way over 30 degrees. And, you know, it's, it's incredibly rare to get an avalanche under 30 degrees. It's kind of outlier terrain. Um, and that's the standard uh, travel advice you'll see in the avalanche bulletin. Hey, it's considerable danger out there. The situation is critical. Human triggered or likely keep it under 30 degrees and out of the runout zones. And yet yeah. we often see people really pushing it. And tragically, we had two really serious accidents in Crested Butte this week where one person critically injured, another person killed, and they were riding over 40 degrees and a bullseye right where the persistent slab problem was. We've got a really bad surface whore problem right now. And so they were like, okay, considerable danger, riding well over 40 degrees, exactly where the problem lives. It's like saying, hey, the mountain lion lives on this north facing terrain. And I'm like, sweet, let's go tangle with the mountain lion. And I think we need to get the word out there, the public and just say, hey, the professionals, we really dial it back. And we're not doing that stuff. Yeah. And we've got more training and mentorship and teamwork and data tracking than the public does. And we're still reining it way back in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the, the concept of building margins into what we do. So, you know, whether we're using a term like uh, considerable or, uh, you know, human triggered avalanches are likely we want to feel like we have uh, a big enough buffer to account for the uncertainty we have. So does that surface or exist in this particular location? I don't know. I mean, I could dig a profile and I'll be really confident about right where I dig, but I don't know if it exists 20 yards away from here. So there's when yeah. we're dealing with that uncertainty, the way we have to manage it is by building margins in and, you know, leaning toward the conservative side of things. And one of the easiest places to put a margin in is just with slope angle. Uh, yeah. And ultimately, that's, you know, I feel like that is what we teach people on recreational avalanche courses is when avalanche danger goes up. Or when your uncertainty goes up, we dial the terrain down. And that usually just means turning down slope angles. That's the simplest way to do it. And uh, yeah. yeah. And slope <laughs> angles are objective. You can get some baseline data if you have LIDAR laser mapping, and then you can verify it in the field with your slope angle measurements and start to yep. really calibrate your eye. And that's something I see when I'm teaching uh, AMGA courses with new guides is, or working with the special forces mountain guide team, the, there isn't that refinement yet. They're not there yet with the slope angles in the field. And I'm yeah. like, okay, everybody, what's your, what's your number? Play prices, right? Rules the closest without going over. And yeah. you need to be plus or minus two degrees. 
you've got this window, but yeah. as a professional, you need to be there. So when the terrain changes, our um, action changes as well. And yep. it's really interesting to see how people who don't have a, maybe like a peeps mounted, uh, pole mounted slope angle meter or one on their phone, they're, they're wildly divergent and yet supremely confident. <laughs> and usually well, the less, yeah, I had a mentor that would always say, you know, you could spend 20 years looking at slope angles and guessing what they are. And after 20 years, if you don't ever measure them, you are still guessing, right? The only way to hone that skill is by constantly taking your best guess and then pulling out a tool and seeing how you did. And that's how we calibrate. Yeah, I don't but, know if you've ever skied with my brother since our ski exam back in the day, but he is uncannily accurate and it drives me nuts because as brothers, uh -huh. we're super competitive and, yeah. and he is bang on every single time. And I'm yeah. like plus or minus one to two degrees usually. Yeah. And, and it's funny at the early part of the season, October, November, not so accurate, but then the more feedback I get checking with the inclinometer, I get calibrated tighter and tighter and I still yep. can't beat them. And it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. <laughs> you know, one of the things I feel like helped me more than anything when I used to ski patrol was, uh, looking you know, one of the head forecasters made a map of the ski area, photos of the whole ski area with the slope angles of every run on the slope. So this was for our control routes. And so pretty soon you had this like, oh, that's what a 38 degree slope feels like. That's 42 degrees, that's 45 degrees. Yeah. And pretty soon you're like, yeah. oh yeah, that's just like double diamond. Okay, I got that one. And uh, that yeah. I found that so helpful. Yeah. And was that the average of the slope angle in the start zone or was it the max slope angle? It's typically the max slope angle in the start zone. Yeah. Yep. And that you know, is that the most important number. It's, it's not so much the average because if you've got a steep rollover into flat, I want to know what that steep rollover is. That is the most important factor for determining the likelihood of it releasing in an outline. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we need to point out the fact that when you're dealing with persistent weak layers, you also need to be concerned with connected terrain. So you might be skiing yeah. a 33 degree slope, but if it is 38 degrees adjacent to where you're skiing, but connected to, you could trigger the weak layer that's going to pull out into some lower angle terrain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we're seeing here in the Crested Butte zone is the surface hoar layer is incredibly touchy and unpredictable, meaning yep. people are triggering from a half mile away. I mean, that's just not fair. No. Yeah. And then other slopes, non-reactive. So if you happen to dig or ride one of the non-reactive slopes, it gives me this recency bias of like, hey, let's keep stepping it up. It's looking good. But yep. the slope adjacent to us remotely triggered and we couldn't see around the corner. Yeah. No, I, you know, one of my uh, biggest close calls in my entire guiding career is a very similar story to that, where there was a surface horde layer widespread throughout British Columbia. Uh, another guide and I were guiding a trip up at a backcountry hut in BC. And uh, we knew all about the surface whore. And when we flew in, we asked the 
owner of the hut who was also a mountain guide about the surface horror and he said oh yeah well it's not in our our zone our tenure here he said that's oh. crazy like everybody's talking about this there's been like helicopters are oh. remotely triggering it people are triggering it from the flats like how could you not have it here he's like i've been here the last few weeks we've been digging we're not finding it so we start poking around and we're digging and first day we find it, but, uh, okay. you know, it's small, it's not super reactive. And, uh, as the week goes on, we continue to dig and we're finding it some places, but not everywhere. And it's not this giant, big, scary layer. And so gradually over the course of the week, we're starting to step up the terrain and it's like day six of a seven day trip. And we decided to ski this like pretty big run in the Alpine. And uh, my partner's taking the group up and I'm like, hey, I'm just gonna dig one more time and just, just confirm that we don't have the layer in this zone. I dig a profile right at tree line where you'd expect to find surface horror. It's not there at all. I'm like hustling <clears throat> to catch back up with the group. It's, I come around this roll and I see them on, they've got a bunch of switchbacks to gain Ridgecrest. And I watch the guide step onto Ridgecrest. And as soon as he does, this entire bowl rips uh, out like a meter deep. And we've got 10 people oh, in the up track and, oh, you know, all in oh. switchbacks. And this whole thing goes. And I'm like, oh my God, one, two, three, you know, I'm counting. I'm like, get on the radio. Hey, I see everybody. I've got them all. He's like, I know me too. Nobody was involved. His track was kind of miraculously intact. The debris came to within an inch of the pole track next to his up track, wow. but it didn't touch the up track at all. But then we get up to Ridgecrest and, you know, we look at the fracture line and there's like <clears throat> 10 millimeter surface whore, plain as day, giant Whoa. standing up, Wow! you know, right at the base of this 36 inch hard slab, like size D3 avalanche, you know, deadly Whoa. avalanche. Uh, and we we're like, oh, my God, that was way too close. And that's, yeah. you know, anytime I'm dealing with a persistent weak layer, that's what I feel. I remember that of like, you just, you cannot outsmart the snowpack because of this, the bugaboo is spatial variability. You know, the snowpack is not uniform over the terrain. And so trying to, to think, you know, what's going on everywhere is just a folly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't have x-ray vision, even if you're a mountain guide. Exactly. Or even if, like you said, the hut owner who's a mountain guide is like, oh, yeah, I haven't seen it in a couple of weeks. You know, it's looking good. And you're like, you just can't see everything. It's so exactly. much terrain to cover. Yep. Yeah. The, the, the buzzword yeah, I... for that is spatial variability, but it just means that the snow is different here than it is over here. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of we rarely see surface horror forming right at Ridgecrest. There's usually enough 
air movement and wind at those exposed elevations that we don't get a lot of surface hoar in the alpine. We tend to find it the lower elevations at tree line where it's just a bit less windy, but you still have a clear view of the sky. And so for me yeah. not to find it down low and then to have it standing up giant right at Ridgecrest, you know, none of us would have ever guessed that could be the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was curious as you were telling that story, one of the things that stuck out, it, it sounded like as your colleague crested and got on a change in terrain, is that, do you think where he triggered it? Sorry, Jeff, you just cut out there right when you started yeah. asking the question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I must have slowed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the squirrel-powered uh, internet is bogging down. Um, yeah. Do you think it was your colleague who triggered it as he changed terrain? He went from the kind of steep planar slope to it rolled over to flatter terrain? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was right when he stepped onto Ridgecrest. He said he heard the big whoomph, felt the whole snowpack drop out mm. from under him. What was interesting, yeah. I have an incredible photo of that whole up track right after the avalanche. And, uh, you know, he is essentially, there's two big bowls and there's a, a slightly lower angled rib that went between them, but it was subtle. It wasn't like a really pronounced rib. And as he was working up the slope, it kind of clouded over and the light got really flat and he was just kind of feeling mm -hmm the snow, how steep it was and trying to keep the track on the lowest angle terrain he could feel. Yep. And uh, his last, well, as he was getting close to Ridgecrest, he starts poking out and he's like, ah, this is feeling a little steep. So he made a kick turn back away and then another kick turn. So he knew like, if I can't get to Ridgecrest here, it's going to be two more kick turns, which we always try to avoid. Okay but he put two more yeah. in. And then when he stepped onto the ridge, the whole slope triggered. And had he put, had he not put in those last two kick turns, he would have just walked right through the start zone where it actually mm. pulled out. So the fact mm. that he had that wherewithal to be like, this is just feeling a little steep. I'm just going to kick it back. That's what kept the up track completely intact. Whereas if he would have gone straight mm -hmm. across him and or multiple people would have been caught in that avalanche. Yeah. And that pattern of what you're describing of a change in the terrain where it goes from steep to flatter, that is often the place you'll be able to access the weak layer that you weren't disturbing before. And you know, Colorado has a highly variable snowpack because we don't get a lot of snow. It's usually cold and light, so it's easily transported by the wind. So oftentimes people will be skinning up the bowl and as it rolls over onto the ridge, it gets windswept and you go from a two meter snowpack and it's hard to access that weak layer because it's insulated by a thick, strong slab. But then as it thins out closer to the ridge and you're getting down towards grass, that's often where someone collapses the weak layer because the slab has gotten so thin and then it triggers behind them. So they might be on like 25 degrees and shallow 
and the rest of the team is back on steeper terrain over 30 on a big slab and that's where it goes so i'm always really wary yeah. of changes in terrain with persistent weak layers and yeah. changes in the depth of the slab and that's one thing i'll be like probing either with my ski pole handle or actually have my probe out and clipped to my belt on my, my pack so that I can just keep doing that x-ray probing and be like, what's changing, yep. what's changing, what's changing? Yeah. Whoa, oh, this got weird in a hurry. The slab is thinning out and now I feel that strong over week. Ooh, ooh, shoot, I really don't like this. We're out of here. Yep. Well, and yeah, I think, you know, an avalanche probe is the closest thing that we will ever get to x-ray vision unless you are able to raise a bunch more money and create some sort of goggles that will give us that x-ray vision <laughs> for when we're traveling around over snow cover terrain. That's, and if it does happen, I just want to be clear, it was my idea. Uh, so... <laughs> But yeah, the tool we have at the moment is pretty analog. It's a probe and you can feel a lot of what's going on and you can tell the depth of the snow. And if you have benchmarks in the snowpack, one thing I encourage people to do all the time, if you do take the time to dig and you have certain layers in the snowpack, put a probe in next to those layers and see what it feels like when you're passing through those layers. Check the depth see what it feels like when you're going through you know a facet crust combo how far down is it and then when you're walking around with your probe it's much more meaningful because you've calibrated it to the snowpack that you actually know is there i, I think that's the coolest experience when you're teaching an avalanche course and everyone's like oh snow pits i want to learn how to do it and you're like hey you're not going to ride this because the snow pit looks good. Let's just be clear why we're doing the snow pit. It's to yeah. learn about the snow and correlate that with the avalanche bulletin. So we have a conceptual model. It's not a decision-making tool. <laughs> yeah. You don't have enough experience or enough pits. There's just not possible to dig enough on one tour to say yes or no. Um, yeah. However, I love doing that with the ski pole handle, which is kind of gross but then when you hold your probe like a pencil with two fingers and a thumb, kind of like I'm using chopsticks, and it's a skill that needs to be trained over time, it's pretty cool. And then people can start to correlate. And as you change aspect, you're like, oh, I don't feel the crust anymore. Oh, now it's just right. facets to the ground. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. In Colorado, once you push through the slab, then you can just let go of the probe and it just drops all the way down till you hear it hit rock. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, you know, while we're doing a little bit of myth busting, um, one thing that I've seen on social media recently, um, I try to avoid it like the plague, but every once in a while when I'm slumming the deaths out there, depths was people saying, Hey, why are we skiing this steep 38 degree pitch at considerable danger where we have the persistent slab problem? And they're like, cause we already got the slapped slab to collapse and the slope cracked up, but it didn't avalanche. So now we're going to ski it. And I'm like, Whoa, I used to think that way until I've seen slopes collapse multiple times and shoot geysers of snow up in the air. It was that unstable. And then finally on the yeah. 10th or 12th massive booming collapse, 
it finally avalanched and released. And I was like, yeah, I don't think we want to trust our teams, you know, hang our team's lives on that theory of it already collapsed once. It's not going to collapse right. again. You're like, nature doesn't like to be put in boxes. And it is amazing if you're out there long enough, the crazy ass shit you're going to see if you're skiing a hundred <laughs> days a year in the backcountry. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and, I think and speaking of a personal experience, I had, I had a close call with that where we were right on the edge of 30 degrees and we just kept getting booming collapses. And then we finally triggered the slope parallel to us. And it literally crossed a foot over our skin track where we had popped out of the glade. And I was like, that was way too close. It was cutting it yeah. way too close. So that burned that into my brain of just because it collapsed once doesn't mean it's not going to avalanche. Don't, don't yeah. hang your life on that. Well, yeah. I think we just, we don't really have the skill when we hear a big wump like that to assess like how much of the snowpack actually just collapsed right now. You know, you can make a guess, but there's really no way to know whether that was the 10 yards around you, the hundred yards around you, what it was. And it's often, you know, feels big and alarming when in fact it's quite localized still. Mm, yeah. Yeah. My, my friend Dave asked a question that I think you touched on before. He was like, Hey, snow pits, Jeff, like, I understand we can't say, oh, I saw this in the pit here. So that peak over there must be the same. But he's like, if you had to draw a circle around you, how many feet out is that snowpack representative of? And I was like, fucked if I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no way to know. That's the million dollar question. You know, we've all probably seen yeah. or many, certainly most of us professionals have seen the famous photo from Bruce Jameson, who runs a, the snow science department, at University of Calgary, uh, of a, what looks like a very uniform planar slope that has like, oh gosh, 20 different Rouge block tests, large column yep. snowpack tests on there. And the scores yep. range everywhere from very stable to very unstable, uh, all on the same slope with no noticeable difference whatsoever. And as soon as Terrifying, you see that, right? you realize Terrifying. like, okay, all bets are off, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's the yeah. definition of spatial variability. We just don't know yeah. nearly as much as we think we do. But the bias is when you've invested a lot of time into collecting that data, you think that it's much more representative than it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, shifting gears a little bit. Um, I know you teach courses for the, an, an examiner for the AMGA for the American mountain guides association. So you're training and examining new guides. Um, what's often kind of like the classic line or, or, or two bullet points that you will give candidates over and over and order over that, that comes up all the time, like a pattern you're seeing of, Hey, um, you know, this is where you need to, to focus on and, and improve your skills on. Uh, it's probably track setting to be perfectly honest, okay. uh, you know, less in the avalanche realm, uh, and more in just like the overall enjoyment of the day. 
So, you know, mm. I'll typically ask people on a percentage basis, how much of the day do you spend going uphill versus going downhill? <laughs> you know, we all know it's 85, potentially 90% of the day is going yeah. uphill. And so, you know, you really want to work hard to make that part of the day enjoyable. And the way you do that is with your up track. So it's both, you know, yeah. the up track you set and how you pace people on that terrain. And then the other thing about the up track you set is I, f I feel like so many people are so concerned about preserving the skiing. Like, oh, I'm just going to put a million little <laughs> kick turns up this slope over here. Oh, so it's God. like, okay, yeah. you've made a terrible up track that I didn't find in any way enjoyable. And you've gotten zero information about the snow uh, because we didn't go over there and then come back across over here, right? So it's that long, meandering, gentle uptrack that is both enjoyable. People get to the top and go, oh, we're here already. And it also gives you a sense of, oh, it's a little more wind protected on that other side, or it's kind of blown in. It's skiing a little deeper there. Or I wonder what's over that little roll. I'm going to put the uptrack over there and have a look. The other thing I tell people all the time is, you know, when you do put in that gentle meandering up track, it gives you the ability to try to route it by small little test slopes that you can actually just jump on with your skis, yeah. uh, put little ski cuts on, and you can gain a ton of information while you're moving uphill so you don't feel that need to stop and dig a profile and get a ton of information about one spot in the terrain, but you've been collecting info the entire way up. So when you get to the top, you have all these data points that you feel like you can see a trend line through instead of one big yeah. data point that may be totally representative or maybe a complete outlier. But the less data points you have, the harder it is to see the trend line through those points. So yeah, that, and then that's, just taking the aerial view, aerial view on that. As a mountain guide, we have a hypothesis of what the forecast is. The hypothesis is that it's moderate, and we're constantly trying to disprove it. Like we're right. not just like, oh, forecast center said moderate, sweet, let's go. It's like, yeah. okay, we are going to rigorously test this and gather as much data as we can to try to be like, oh, actually, we're seeing a reactive snowpack. We put our skin track in on a mellow spot, but there's this small D1 rollover we can stomp on from above with our whole team. And if it pops off, we're like, okay, forecast disproved, snowpack super reactive, change in plans. And it's yep. not just this blind acceptance and, you know, each forecast zone is going to be different. And I don't know what the internal metrics are, but, you know, one of the, the best forecast centers in Europe, one of, certainly one of the best funded, their, their internal metrics say they're wrong about 20% of the time. And so that's a really sobering thought. And just like the weather forecast, nature is incredibly complex and the yep. humans are incredibly highly trained and skilled at what they do but nature does not like to be put in boxes. So I think it's really important for the uh, recreationalist as well as the professionals to take that mindset and being like, hey, 
the forecast is a mental model that was put out at 4 a.m. by somebody yeah. in the hot seat. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never before. had a day at work. Yeah. 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 Like things could change and it's yeah. over a large zone and we are on a specific slope and we need to verify, verify, verify that it pertains to what we're seeing and not yeah. just be like, woohoo turn my brain off. Let's go part time. Yeah. It's so true. I mean, I, I, it's funny how we have this disconnect of there's so many days that we're out there and the weather is nothing like what the forecast said. (laughs) Yet we look at the avalanche forecast, which is also has this high degree of variability based on exactly where you are. They're forecasting for this huge area and we expect that, Oh, they're, it should be exactly spot on and I'm not going to see anything different than what they told me. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if you've seen this in the different places you've skied. Um, You know, our variance over time is our bias. And so if I'm constantly aggressive and a few days conservative, I have an aggressive bias and I am by definition, unable to see my own blind spots. And if you go out with me and we're working with a group together, you can give me that feedback. And I'll be like, Oh, really, Larry? I I wasn't aware of that. Oh, shit. But for you, it's totally obvious. (laughs) Right. But that's the definition of a blind spot. So if we're biased, it is unconscious. And forecast centers around the world will have a bias towards we're going to call it considerable because the snowpack is fundamentally unfavorable. And then other forecast centers will have a bias towards we're dropping it to moderate because, uh, you know, um, natural triggered avalanches are unlikely today. So we're going to moderate. And that's an interpretation based upon this uber less than one percent of the professionals in the world. And there's still differences in biases. And I think that's something that the public's not aware of, but that we talk about as guides. And I'll often hear it in Europe where they're like. I would rather ski in France at considerable than Colorado at moderate because that old snow problem is a bastard. (laughs) And at least in Europe, if it's considerable, it's because they're talking about wind slab and I can see it and I can feel it on the surface and I can, I can pivot as necessary. Yeah. Well, and I think honestly, that's, uh, one of the biggest improvements in the avalanche, uh, forecasting world in recent years is just that we've started talking about avalanche problems and we're not just looking Mm -hmm. at the hazard rating but we're talking about the problem because you can have way higher confidence uh when we're dealing with storm slab or even wind slab than when we're dealing with a persistent slab problem that old snow problem just like it's just baked in such higher uncertainty how it's distributed over the terrain and what it's going to take to trigger that layer. And uh, yeah, it just, you just can't outsmart it where it's easy to outsmart a storm slab. You just stick to mellow terrain. Whereas, you know, it's just not as easy to outsmart the persistent slab. And so I would tell people don't even try. But in the end, the solution is the same. You just stick to really conservative terrain. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think your, your story about the surface horror up in Canada on the hut trip illustrates that really well, where 
Yeah. Um, there's a the the mountain guide who designed the uh, Austrian method called stop or go uh, is a great interview with the Austrian Alpine Club. And they're doing a 20 year retrospective on, hey, this is the standard that the public's trained in, as are the professionals. And as a mountain guide, if I have an accident in Austria, it's going to be held up against the standard. And if I was in the red of the stop and go data driven algorithmic method, I better have really strong reasons to justify why I took my team there. It better not yep. be, well, I felt good about two pits that I dug. The surface whore wasn't present. They're like, hey, if you're in that blacked out critical danger sector, you need to expect it to be reactive. And his point is, as a professional, he's like, my job is to shepherd my group through the terrain. It is not to be digging pits on the fly and making a reactionary decision of whether we ski the slope based on one or two pits at a tee break. And he's like, the predictive value of that pit for me keeping my team alive is almost zero. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it feels truthy in the moment, that bias yeah. of, oh, I just got this data. It's really yeah. fresh. And he's like, don't get pulled into that. You know, the, you can't outsmart the weak layer and the bulletin tells you all you need to know. And the yeah. only reason I might be digging is like to see, oh, we're trying to avoid the critical blacked out areas by going south or southwest where the surface ore got cooked. But I'm going to dig just to make sure that the yeah. bulletin is accurate. And oh, shit, we found it here. OK, dial it back. You know, yep. that, that's what he's talking about is like, don't try to be a wizard out there be a risk yeah. manager. And the bulletin right. tells you stay out of these critical danger zones that 95% of the victims die in is exactly where it was blacked out. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think of a recreational avalanche course where, uh, I think it was a considerable day with storm slab. And as we're putting in our up track, we're jumping on all these like steep little rolls on boulders and on tiny little slopes. Everything's popping off super easily. Oh, wow. You know, you can just grab a, sh a shovel full of snow and tap on it. And you watch the layer sliding on there. It was like all of our observations on the way up are pointing toward, yeah, the snowpack's really unstable right now. And then we go through, okay, we're going to teach you guys how to do full profiles. And we do some profiles and the spot where we chose to dig, we get no results from compression test or an extended column test. And people are like, okay, well, looks like we're good to go, right? And it's like, well, what about everything else that we saw the whole rest of the day today? And people, you know, were like, oh yeah, that's, that's true. But, you know, we hadn't spent an hour in one spot, you know, going deep <laughs> on the snow right there. But somehow we just happened to pick a spot that was more stable than all the places we had been elsewhere. And I think that's, you and, know, and, yeah. I don't know what we actually I'm laughing, I'm laughing with them because I was guilty of doing that early on. Because when yeah. I did my early avalanche courses back in the dark ages, that's what we were doing was like, hey, we got the forecast. Now let's dig on this slope and decide whether we ski it or not. And I'm yep. so glad that we've moved away from that paradigm and left that yeah. in the dark ages. Yeah.
Yeah. No, honestly, that's what set me on my path in the avalanche education world was uh, I took my first avalanche class in Telluride in 1995. And, you know, the whole class was focused yeah. on digging snow profiles. And uh, so I remember one time I'm like skinning around with my girlfriend and uh, we keep getting these giant wumps. And I'm like, okay, I remember from the class, this means like the snow is unstable. So like, let's dig a profile and see what that looks like. And so we kind of tuck into the base of this like small slope, you know, 40, 50 foot high slope. And I dig a profile and I'm doing all the tests they taught us and like, I'm not really getting any results. I'm like, God, it's so weird. I don't know what to think. My girlfriend gets bored. She like starts skinning away. And I, as I'm like climbing up out of the profile, I step onto the snow, my bare boots, get this giant wump. The whole slope avalanches down around my feet, fills in the hole I just dug. I'm like, oh my God. It just pointed out like, the folly of trying to like really understand from a single hole in the snow. Whereas the snowpack yeah. had been screaming to us just walking around on it. Like, Hey, really unstable yeah. structure right here. I didn't need to pull out a, a shovel to see that. And in fact, yeah. pulling out yeah. the shovel only confused me much more. Yeah. Yeah. The snowpack was screaming was like, in your okay, ear. I got to figure this stuff out because this makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, last week uh, uh, we had some uh, AMGA guides in town, Angela Hawes and Mike Hatrop. And uh, so they were pretty psyched to ski in Crested Butte because they'd never skied here before. And yeah. I was uh, putting myself in their ski boots because as we know, there's nothing more dangerous than a bunch of guides out on their day off. <laughs> and it was considerable danger the day before it had been high danger. So it's super touchy. Yeah. And we've never toured with each other before. And I was like, Hey, I'll tell you what, let's, let's all get on the same page. I've loaded up all the classic routes in Crested Butte on aspect Abbey. So you can go on the laptop and open up the web app and you guys decide where we're going to go so that I'm not the keeper of the knowledge and like trying to thread the needle that would, that makes me really uncomfortable when I'm going to a new zone and it's critically unstable with people I haven't toured before. I want big buffers and I've, I've seen yeah. it go wrong so many times. And so it was pretty cool where Angela picked out where were we going to go and it was exactly where I was going to have us go. So of, of like the 50 runs on there, it was yeah. like, she picked the exact same one that I was going to do. Cause it was in the clear. It wasn't in the red. And, yeah. and and Mike totally agreed. And that took us three minutes and we were on the same page. And then we had a wild card come in and it was a really experienced local. who's a phenomenal skier, does ski comps all over the North America. And, and as we were going up, we got like a dozen booming collapses up this low angle ridge. So it's death to our left, death to our right. And we're on this prow, this rib of under 30 degrees. Cause we said, we're not going over 30 degrees today. We're going to stay out of the runout zones. And we're getting all these booming collapses. And this the the person who's not a, a guide said, hey, what if we skied over there on the north face and do those pillow drops? They're not particularly big. They're kind of small start zones. And all three of us were like, oh, hell no. 
with <laughs> the snowpack is screaming at us like we there's not enough money in the world to go tickle those small avalanche zones because they're like certainly big enough and rake yeah. you through the trees and it was such a different perspective uh it was really interesting and i i think um it was very comforting where angela spoke up and said hey we already made our tour plan we are not deviating from it we're going to stay out of avalanche terrain we're locked in on that if you'd yeah. like to do a different tour go ahead but we're not going and it was <laughs> It was quite comforting to see see that, yeah. that my guide's day off experience is finally evolving from, oh, let's push it right to the limit because it's a highly trained group to let's give ourselves plenty of buffer because why yeah. we, we just don't want to be stressed. We want to have fun and be relaxed. Uh, you know that I feel like we that's exactly what we talked about earlier when we said so many recreational groups do is they just go out there with this loose idea and then when that person who almost by definition of what you described they do ski comps like they they have a higher risk tolerance than a lot of us are willing to jump off big things and ski super fast right uh they throw out this idea and you know it it subjects the group to this pressure of like you know hey i'm a good skier hey i can do this and uh suddenly there's a lot more emotion in the decision-making than we want there to be uh, when it comes to the, the single critical decision that we get to make every day, which is where are we going to go? We want that done with as little emotion involved as possible. And, and you know, you nailed it there because there was a disconnect because it was a last minute ad and Angela and Mike were over for curry at my house that night. And even though we'd each had like two glasses of wine and I am such a lightweight, I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm, you guys play on the tour. Um, we all had the same data because we were all looking at the web app and it was very yeah. clear which runs were in the red. And Angela was like, hey, there's only about five runs that aren't in the red zone for tomorrow. It's considerable danger. We need to stay out of Avalanche Train and these face north. Let's go there. And yeah. the, the fourth person didn't have that information coming in and didn't have that kind of operational mindset of we do our run list before we leave. We can only go more conservative, but we are not going more aggressive. So it was like a cultural and uh, disconnect, but also not having that same information to level the playing field so that two folks from out of town who have never been here before have the exact same information that I'm going off of. And yep. we can, we can get to agreement in, in minutes and just be like, yeah. easy, done. Yep. Done. Hey, um, so Larry, I could literally talk to you all day, but we're coming up <laughs> on an hour and a half. So let me ask you briefly, um, tell me about your role at evoke coaching mountain athletes. Yeah, so uh, Scott Johnson has been one of my closest friends and a longtime climbing and skiing partner for several decades. Uh, and uh, so, you know, he's written several books about training for alpine climbing and training for endurance sports, mountain running, ski mo, uh, you know, training for the new alpinism and training for the uphill athlete. Then he co-founded the company Uphill Athlete. And uh, 
which fairly quickly turned into a coaching business. And Scott has helped mm-hmm. me back in the day when you and I were going through our guides exams, Scott really helped yeah. train me to prepare for those exams. And honestly, like that's probably, that was the height of my fitness ever <laughs> Yeah, is, you know, when I had some real structure to my training, in addition to just being out there all the time. And, uh, So, you know, whenever we'd go out on adventures, we would often wind up talking training methodology and, uh, and I would often train with Scott in the shoulder seasons when I wasn't busy guiding. Uh, and then a few years back, we started talking and Scott was asking me like, well, how long do you think you can keep guiding for? And, you know, what's, what's your exit strategy? And, uh, it's like, "Mm, yeah, really don't have one. And uh, my wife and I always joke that uh, we've been living in semi-retirement for a year. So we're just going to work until we're dead at this point. And uh, so a few years ago, Scott said, hey, you know, you should consider uh, coaching for us. You know, I could train you in sort of the methodologies. You already understand a lot of these principles but uh, you could continue to do it while you're working as a guide. You don't have to commit to doing it full time. And then when you want to cut back on your guiding, you'll have this other thing that you can continue to do for many years. And he said, honestly, Mm -hmm. one of the, the biggest things about coaching, much like guiding, is that the job is about working with people. You know, so you and I, we're not professional skiers or professional climbers, we're professional guides, right? We can facilitate people and the medium that we're using is climbing and skiing. And so coaching shares a lot of that where you have to be good with working with people and then understanding some basic training philosophies. Uh, You know, Scott didn't invent, but he has really helped to to streamline And uh, yeah, so I work with athletes, I would say primarily in the mountaineering world, but also in the ski touring world. I work with a handful of guides that are either uh, training for guides exams or training for big personal objectives they have coming up in their off season from guiding. Uh, But yeah, all kind of mountain sports people at Evoke, we we really only train people for mountain sports. So everything from alpine climbing, mountaineering, ski touring, uh, ultra running, you know, we're not training triathletes. We're not training cyclists or swimmers or, you know, uh, yeah. really any other style of athletes. And we, we tend to try to pair people up with a coach that knows that sport really well. So, um, you know, people that want to go ski touring in the Alps, they'll often send to me because I've done so many of those trips or, um, you know, so, yeah. Uh, I I think maybe the, the people fail to understand how specific the sport demands are, and that'll come through oftentimes when clients are booking a trip and they'll say, oh yeah, I'm an Ironman triathlete. And I'm like, there's no way I could run a marathon. My legs would fall off and there's no way my butt wouldn't fall off riding 112 miles. And I would drown on that two mile swim, but it is amazing to see at altitude throwing time zone change. And you're on a six day, seven day hut to hut tour. 
and they're falling apart because the demands of the sport are so specific and they haven't shifted their training to fit the demands of the sport. And I, I think that's where taking a mountain athlete approach and being like, hey, let's really zero in on your goals and tailor it and find out what your strengths and weaknesses are already, leverage the strengths and ruthlessly train the weaknesses and get yep. you really prepared for this, this trip you're going for. So you're not just surviving and hanging on, you're thriving and enjoying it. This is a trip of a lifetime. You, you yep. want to really get the most out of it. Absolutely. Now you're exactly right. It's so much of it comes down to specificity of training so that, uh, especially in the later phases of your training, your training looks a lot like the event that you are training for. And, yes. uh, and then you're exactly right. We work with a lot of guide services. They send clients to us to help them get ready for big climbs or big expeditions so that the people have a, just a high chance of success and whether or not they get to the top of the mountain, they can actually enjoy the time they're out there. They're not just hanging on and suffering the whole time. So, and yeah, yeah. since I've been yeah. doing it, uh, yeah, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. it. It's similar to guiding in that you develop these really close personal relationships with people uh, and you get to help them achieve these long sought after goals. Uh, but more so than guiding, like literally with my coached athletes, I, I, we have some almost daily contact. So I know about oh, their yeah. families and, you know, what they like to do and, their, you know, their jobs, like you, you really get to know these people, they become good friends. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's something I really appreciate about that work. Yeah. And I can I see that cross wound up climbing and skiing with people. Ah, perfect synergy. Yeah. yeah. It, it's so satisfying. I, I think for me, I've had whew, basically 30 years of hardcore adventuring, skiing, and climbing. So it's really hard to move the needle and be like, oh, that was an exceptional day just because I've had so many good days in the mountains. I've been incredibly privileged. But what I find now is it's more rewarding to facilitate an experience and help someone build towards their goals and set them up to realize the goals. Yep. That is so rewarding. That That's more rewarding than a, a great powder day or a great climbing day personally for me. Yeah, yeah. no, I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things inherent in that is what I've seen, you know, training is like this long-term project, right? It takes a while to kind of move the needle and to build fitness and to see those gains. And so having a goal out there is such an important thing, no matter who you are or, you know, what yeah. you're training for. And it's like been interesting, you know, I try not to coach my wife, but <laughs> And she's a pretty good athlete, but recently, you know, she saw another mutual friend of ours do this incredible endurance event over in Europe, multi-day stage oh, wow. race. And uh, she was like, I need a goal, you know? And uh, so we kind of developed this goal together, something her and I could do together. And like, since she's had a goal, she's been so much uh, more disciplined about making sure she is training, you know, 
five days a week. She's just like, before it was kind of hit or miss. She fitted in when she could. She always tried to get exercise, but now, and you know, there's a difference between exercise and training, right? <laughs> Which I think a lot of yeah. people don't make that yeah. distinction. And having a goal can yeah. help you make sure like, all training is exercise, but not all exercise is training. And so, you know, with the limited time we all have, you want to make sure the stuff you're doing is actually moving you closer to that goal. And so yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's something I really appreciate that. about coaching is just helping people do that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Larry, um, I've put you in the hot seat and peppered you with a whole bunch of questions because none of this was canned, so you didn't know what was coming. Um, do you have any questions for me or one question for me? Cause we're been talking for a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been, uh, I've been playing with the app that you developed and, uh, and been kind of sharing it with other people. And one of the questions that just came out recently is I have a number of friends in Canada that are wondering uh, if they can expect at any point to see the app being uh, available up there. And, uh, you know, I, I actually initially thought it was and a friend of mine that I was just talking with, I was like, Oh, let me zone in on your area. And I was like, Oh, it's, there's no avalanche forecast yeah. on the the app. And so, yeah, I was curious about that. And just given how much terrain there is up there. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, Canada is really far behind the U S on its LIDAR mapping. So that's laser mapping. Mm -hmm. And that's the high resolution mapping where they shoot 18 lasers per one meter tiles. And that's what we absolutely have to have is high resolution mapping. And so I don't know how many years until Canada starts to get many of the ski zones mapped. Right now, they have a couple urban areas mapped, but very, very little in the back country that overlaps where we would go riding. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll have to get back to you, but it, it'll be a couple years. Um, yeah. The countries that are fast on the laser mapping are Switzerland and Norway. So those okay. would be the next places where you'd find Aspect Abbey. Uh, yeah be able to use well, it until there, you but, guys yeah it's got to be high yeah and you're probably looking at investing in some you know planes that can do this lidar mapping you know <laughs> all <laughs> under the auspices of aspect avi right are you acquiring your <laughs> yeah planes yeah it's, it's it's incredibly expensive for them to gather that data so we'll just wait till the usgs makes it available for free but or the canadian version <laughs> yeah but you know it brings up an interesting point where i think um operationally like you know if you had a heli operation in canada you could actually map out your own zone and then you know have your own version of aspect avi that's in-house proprietary um, oh, and set your parameters and I, I think for guides meetings it's really tough you mentioned before like you know, if you're working in a large tenure, like I think you said, North Cascades is like 30 square miles, right? About that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that's really big, but some of the Canadian operations are even larger. And when you green light a run, it doesn't mean that you can ski everything on that mountain, you know, 
it means it's like, okay, the guy needs to choose the terrain appropriately. However, it's so much easier for people to visualize it where if you can see, oh yeah, half the run is in the red and then the slight aspect change to the south, that's in the clear. Oh, okay, let's lower angle. We're going to ski there. And I think it's a great visualization tools for morning meetings. So you can be like, oh yeah, the you know, whatever the name of the run is, the left side is closed, but the right side is open. Um, so that right. may be a really cool in-house application for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, Larry, how can people get a hold of you if they want to engage your services as a mountain guide or get coached as a mountain athlete? What's the best way to yeah. get a hold of you? Uh, you know, uh, people can find me through either uh, my company's website, North Cascades Mountain Guides, uh, or Evoke Endurance. Uh, at both of those companies, okay. I'm Larry at NC Mountain Guides and Larry at EvokeEndurance.com. Uh, you, you can find me on social media, but you'll wonder something happened to me <laughs> because I'm not super active on there. So uh, yeah, email or the websites are probably the best way to track me down. Okay, great. And then they can also uh, listen to you on a podcast, right? Yeah. So the EvokeCast uh, is our in-house podcast at Evoke Endurance and uh yeah, I've been the host of quite a number of them. Uh, all of the coaches kind of take turns, but uh, it's largely focused on training for mountain athletes, but we've branched out a bit from that. And it's just uh, topics of interest for, you know, mountain athletes, uh, but certainly with a heavy bias toward training philosophy. So, yeah, I think okay. that could be of interest to a lot of people out there. Yeah. Great place to go geek out and hear new ideas and, and, uh, yeah, a little bit of banter. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. You're welcome. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. All right. Cheers, Larry. Thanks. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to all aspects. If you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating interview. It really is the best way to help others find the show. Thanks again to our business daddy, Aspect Abbey, for making this show possible. To learn more about how Aspect Abbey is making avalanche safety simple, go to aspectabbey.com. If you want to use this powerful new tool on your next backcountry adventure, simply download the app from the App Store and enjoy 30 days free on them. Lastly, a special thanks to Ice Lab for helping us produce this show. You guys rock and we couldn't do it without you. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the backcountry.